So this is another podcast together with Michael Salin, uh, together with whom uh, I've written the book entitled Engulfed in Flames about the Southern Dimension of European Security. It is available on the uh, website of the Royal Academy of, of War Sciences in Sweden, kkrva.se. And um, uh, I hope uh, it sort of sur- summarizes uh, many of the lessons learned from our previous podcast and our discussions with many people uh, for a, a considerable uh, period of time uh, over the last mm-hmm. year. Uh, we are now proceeding towards an overall final report from the project. We are working on the same topic sponsored by the Academy. And of course, Michael, as a former ambassador to Turkey, to Serbia, to Norway, as a former State Secretary of Defense in Sweden, and a founding Director General of the Folke Bernadotte Academy, you are exceptionally well-placed, also as a Chair of the Security Policy Department of the Academy, to have a view on where we are and where we are going in terms of European and global security. You have just published a blog in Swedish on this, on the Academy homepage, Um, that I would like to ask you to share with some brief words uh, with us. Uh, what, what is the gist of that uh, pod, uh, that blog uh, in Swedish? Um, and thereafter, I propose to go into a number of Twitter questions that I uh, put on uh, my Twitter account um, just now before Christmas. It follows up... Uh, on an, an earlier podcast we did about about 20 uh, Twitter polls that we made in August of this year um, on the situation before the American elections, basically. Now, the, the new uh, very preliminary polls that I, I put out, uh, not many people have time to, have time to, to answer or react to them yet, Um, they um, focus on the situation on the from the first on the first uh, uh, hand from the American perspective and then on the second from the Russian perspective. So both are essential perspectives for us uh, to keep uh, uh, keep in mind. Of course, now <clears throat> talking today on the 16th of December, We have a situation where Biden and Harris have been elected to the presidency and vice presidency of the United States. Yesterday, the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, in a rather gracious way, uh, welcomed uh, the um, newly elected leaders of the United States, thereby uh, opening the way for other Republicans, of course, to to do the same. And we've had a, a proper... Uh, a legal review with uh, the Supreme Court and and uh, a number of lower courts rejecting massively all, almost all of the legal suits that we put on the issue of extensive tr- fraud, so no extensive fraud in this election. So we have come <coughs> back, one would say, to a normalcy in that sense, that we have a, a re-established uh, normalcy uh, in the uh, three branches of of American government, one would think, superficially. We also have a recognition from China of the election. We have just yesterday or the day before yesterday a recognition by Russia. So on the international, global, big power level, one would say, oh, okay, so are we back to normal? And I come back to that in the Twitter post uh, later, where I put some questions about these things. Uh, but um, over to you, Michael. Can you give, me, give us a sense where you are, where you come from, uh, when you wrote this, uh, this uh, a blog, which I think is uh, very timely? Mm. Okay, thank you, Lars-Erik. Um, uh, yeah, I was coming from a, a session having given a briefing for, uh, for an academy gathering, um, on the Monday this week. So the, uh, and then I sort of wrote, uh, um, an article, uh, uh, from the point of view of what I had said on this occasion. Uh, and the idea was, uh, it's even named a very special Monday, 
uh, having a focus mainly on on U.S. affairs. So I highlight the fact that this particular Monday uh, contains different strains of drama in the U.S. On the one hand, you had the extraordinary figure of deaths um, bypassing uh, the figure 300,000, which is extraordinary. Uh, I point out that this is uh, by far more death than the totality of deaths from the U.S. in the Second World War. In the latter, you had uh, 291,000 deaths. Now you have um, passed uh, the threshold of 300,000. So that was one thing. Secondly, on the other hand, you had the start, start of the extraordinary light in the tunnel kind of, uh, of process with the vaccines, uh, which are the solution to this drama. But uh, thirdly, sadly, uh, it will take some time before the effect of this massive vaccine campaigning will have an effect on the on the virus. And meanwhile, uh, everyone is uh, predicting that the, the U.S. is facing weeks and weeks and then weeks of dark winter before there is spring and light in the tunnel. So you have that as well, and in the in this climate, uh, you have the uh, the effect on the part of the establishment in Congress failing utterly to respond to the very 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 clear, uh, I would say, drastic needs of the American people for for a rescue package economically, uh, and it's still ongoing even as even as we speak now. So this somehow uh, is just manifold drama being played out and then on the political scene you have as you said the, the various uh, signs of normalcy normality uh, being restored in, in various ways with the recognition of of the new president and vice president uh, before uh, well before the uh, the inauguration in on, on the 20th of march but as i point out you still have the problematic of the outgoing president still refusing recognition and carrying with him still today, in spite of what you said about uh, Mitch McConnell yesterday, but many other leading uh, Republicans still refuse to not continue to support the outgoing president. So it's an extraordinary situation uh, affecting the political system, and it does so, as I point out, in two ways. One is to raise questions as to what may still happen by way of creating fait accompli in the period now uh, when the uh, legal procedures have been exhausted and it's clear that Biden will be president and the fact of him actually being in, in the White House together with Kamala Harris. That is one perspective. The other perspective is, so in what ways does this uh, this disorderliness politically pave the way for disorderliness perhaps facing the next uh, rounds of, uh, of elections in the future? And uh, this has everything to do also with this uh, grip that Donald Trump may still hold over the GOP as uh, we, they, enter the next rounds of elections, uh, midterm elections in, in 2022, and, uh, of course, next round of elections. So many questions for all the relief that many have of, of uh, normalcy being uh, being uh, reinstalled, but there are still, uh, the danger isn't over. And then I uh, proceed to discuss in this, uh, uh, this pod, uh, blog, sorry, uh, what can still happen in this interim period before the uh, inauguration in the area of foreign policy? And then I point to, as there are, there are so many issues about China and about Russia and so on, but I point especially to the Iran factor and the uncertainties there, because in this case, it is so clear that uh, the outgoing president is uh, less keen to be helpful to the new president in his dealing with, with the Iran uh, file. Uh, the new president, the incoming president, has been saying that he wishes to return to a process of negotiations, and uh, Donald Trump clearly is against the GSPO uh, being somehow re-entered into by the U.S., and then you have the Israeli actor factor as well to uh, to perhaps seek to use this, uh, this uh, void now 
to create uh, further fait accomplis in various ways. So I point to the various risks involved in that, pointing to the recent killing, for example, of the uh, nuclear scientist, uh, whose name I just now forgot, but it's Farah Kadish something, sorry. And then, of course, the killing earlier this year of, the, of, of General Soleimani. So you have, a, you have a silent warfare going on all the time. But the big issue now, will uh, Israel perhaps be attempted to, to preempt uh, new, uh, Iran from getting closer to achieving the bomb uh, in the void now uh, about new administration and, and, uh, and uncertainties about the JCPOA. So I see great dangers there for international peace and security. So that's, that's about it. So now you see on the screen the, um, the article that you published on the Academy website kkrva.se um, and um, if we move on uh, I mentioned before that um, we did a, a, a podcast together in the end of August 2020 about, uh, about 20 Twitter polls that uh, I had put out on the situation the way ahead for the uh, American election and everything around that. And uh, in uh, 2016, I did a similar set of polls uh, where people in the people who answered uh, mainly thought that Clinton would be elected and uh, that she would also have support from at least the House uh, and possibly also the Senate in uh, in August this year, we had the uh, outcome that uh, most people thought that uh, Biden would win and would carry both houses of Congress. Um, but um, uh, they were m- people were more pessimistic about what that meant in terms of uh, going back to normal in external relations. Uh, uh, almost half of the respondents thought that no important things have happened in the relationship between the United States and the world and inside the United States as well, which makes it less likely that things will go back uh, completely to to normal. So, um, um, on on, uh, on this note, uh, let me just. Um, uh, go back to uh, the set of polls that I did, uh, again, uh, not very visible to people this at this time of year and in this particular very extraordinary situation with COVID and every So not many people have reacted. Uh, so the main, uh, the overarching uh, question now after the election, this was put out uh, 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 on December 3rd, uh, what now after the election of Biden, will things go back to normal? Uh, yes, most people thought in NATO-EU relations. Uh, yes, NATO, but not EU, somewhat in both. And uh, a small minority thought that there would be no particular uh, progress towards uh, normalcy. What is your view on this? Yeah, um I would comment on on what you said uh, before about uh, about polls uh, earlier, for example, predicting or, or discussing uh, the outcome of the 2016, and by the way, also this year's uh, this year's election. And uh, I mean, those that you have asked tend to uh, coincide with the opinion polls uh, because they, in both cases, were so clear in predicting. Clinton victory and uh, and now Biden victory and then uh, they were shaken and so were many others by the real outcomes uh, showing that the polls had somehow underestimated the the currents uh, that have been uh, sort of at work in in U.S. politics uh, so that there was systematic underestimation of the of the prospects in the case of uh, returning to uh, normalcy uh, or normality. Um, 
my view is that uh, there is we we must not again make the mistake that when some basic variables uh, or changes happen uh, in the direction of restoring normalcy it may, it means going back full steam because the world is not the same now as it was status quo ante uh, 2016 and, and for so I mean what we know now is that ha- there have been currents to change both globally and inside the US also inside Europe uh, that have been that has longer roots longer history than the Trump period but that also during this Trump period the, the Trump factor has uh, had a profound impact on on many on many issues and then there are forces of change uh, irrespective of the Trump factor that have also uh, changed so uh, whereas the initial reaction uh, if I take the point of view of, uh, of Europe is one of a great relief and, and great expectation for for some kind of up upgraded updated normality to be restored I think one should now guard uh, against uh, over over expectation because uh, uh, very few people are quite sure what normality means when you take the point of view uh, uh, as a point of view uh, perspective at the end of 2020. It's not just going back to how things were uh, before 2016. That is clear. So I have to guard here that uh, there will be changes, uh, there will be some element of normality compared to had Trump won four more years, yeah. obviously. Hence the the uh, the size of, of relief in many ways. But that relief is no guarantee that things will be normal in this 2016 sense. Right. So if we what look at think? the sub... Uh, yeah. We can look at the subcategories here and just... Uh, uh, don't mind the numbers here because there are very few people who have actually reacted mm, to mm, this. But mm. uh, most people seem to believe that the climate accord will come back for mm. the U.S. That should not be so complicated. Mm. Uh, the start is uh, more questionable because there you have the fact of China, whether Russia will... Uh, well, we don't know, uh, frankly. This is uh, mm. still up in the air. Uh, whether the world economy will benefit from Biden. Uh, many people hope so. Others are less uh, sure about how mm. big business will react on the stock markets and the investors. Um, whether Biden will seek another reset with Putin. Uh, well, very much caution in that, I suppose, mm. is, a, is a common sense uh, view. Engaged in the Middle East, yes, there are people are, are optimistic, uh, but it's going to be very complicated, of course, given the steps that Trump already has taken with the help mm. of Kushner. Uh, Biden and Brexit, uh, well, he has already made his view clear as a, a, with Irish uh, ancestry, uh, but uh, most people think that it's too late for him to influence uh, at least what's going on right now. Push for nuclear arms control. Uh, bilateral, yes, possibly, uh, but um, otherwise more general. It, it, in that sense, similar to what the Trump administration has done in terms of trying to promote a better environment for arms control rather than proposing arms control measures by themselves. Reviving a dialogue within the OEC, uh, yes, uh, but... Uh, We've heard from some people who are active in the Obama administration that, yes, they might be more active, but they would require a strong initiative on the European side, not least the Germans, but of course for Sweden, important also as the chairman in office incoming for the OEC. Who would be the key interlocutor? Well, uh, um, coming back to a better dialogue with the EU, it seems likely. And of course, with Germany, but there we have the complication of the of the succession of Merkel, which is going to be decided in September of this year in, in the Conservative in the CDU party. Uh, about uh, multilateralism, more optimism, maybe is that uh, more or less realistic? I don't know. But I, do you want me to go through by, or can you make a general uh, assessment of this? Uh, 
Mm. What is most likely, what is least likely here? Yeah. Well, there are many, uh, many aspects and uh, lots to say on, on all of these uh, items. Uh, but I, I would start out by saying, that, which I should have said even uh, earlier in our conversation now, that uh, we, can, we cannot forget and overlook the COVID-19 factor. Yeah. Because it is so important globally, and it will be so uh, such a determinant on 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 uh, possible activities uh, also by the Biden uh, administration. Uh, it will be a, a constraint also to uh, to activities uh, on in other areas, but also something that compels cooperation in ways where which would uh, be contradicted perhaps by other factors. But I mean, as I said before, if you have a situation now when Biden still is not in charge uh, of things, but of course has uh, assembled a fine team of of, of uh, coronavirus uh, warriors, uh, so to speak, in, in the central leadership, but he's still not in the White House and still not uh, in, in charge of all the things that need to be done. So uh, you have the uh, transition factor uh, militating against efficiency on the f- in the fight against the coronavirus, but the U.S. is is looking forward to a situation which is uh, rather unique in terms of darkness for the for the months ahead before the v- uh, vaccine campaign can make a real difference. So I guess that both the the coronavirus as such and the experiences from a from a uniquely massive vaccination campaign will have an impact on policy options uh, in various ways, uh, and that applies both domestically in the U.S. and and globally in terms of of uh, well patterns of cooperation and and, and competition. Uh, so you have that. Uh, I, I would guard uh, against um, predictions on other areas because, uh, because of the importance of the, of the COVID-19 factor. Uh, importance in terms of uh, retaining basic tenets of uncertainty in our prediction. Otherwise, my sec- second comment would be to say that, yes, it is absolutely clear to me and I guess uh, to most, to you, that uh, the instinct of the new uh, Biden administration is uh, both as a, re- a reaction to how things have been for the last four years and also naturally, regardless of, of the Trump uh, influence, to restore multilateralism. So I would expect, uh, I would expect a rather early U.S. Uh, and Biden uh, response uh, once in power or maybe even before uh, by way of signals restoring the Paris Agreement on Climate or re-entering it I should say uh, re-entering WHO which I, I think rather uh, was rather sad for, for the US to abandon it or signal abandoning it um, there, there are other international multilateral accords which will signify and signal a U.S. Deter- U.S. Biden determination to uh, restore the essentials of U.S. involvement in 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 multilateralist uh, structures in various ways. GCPOA with Iran is, of course. Uh, not so easy simply to declare re-entering into because it involves complex exchanges of of, uh, of commitments and signals from the two sides. And by the way, Iran does have uh, presidential elections uh, in the upcoming spring, so, uh, the way the U.S. did have the same recently, and and the elections somehow necessary, but can also be dis- disruptive. So uh, again, uh, the Iran factor is going to be one of very sensitive uh, exchanges of signals, and it's not for the U.S. only to own. It is co-ownership with the with Israel and the uh, Gulf states dealing with Iran. There is a tendency um, in the Iran case, uh, just to mention that briefly, for uh, us in the West to talk about Iran. Uh, as uh, one one thing is the nuclear factor and the uh, nuclear capability, the threshold uh, proliferation aspects of Iran, but but uh, so many other things that Iran is doing is called malign in in the Western press. Uh, when I ever I see that, I I reflect, as you know, there is a Swedish saying: uh, you you take what you have. It's a quote from a 
from a very famous historic, historically famous Swedish cook um, from cooking. But of course, <laughs> it means that terrorists uh, use uh, terrorist means because that's the only thing they have. And in the case of uh, Iran, to have the uh, advantage of geography and then try to mobilize facing uh, Israeli nuclear weapons or overwhelming U.S. power, uh, you can also describe things in. In, in terms of uh, you do take what you have uh, and then try to keep up balances and uh, there is no certain in this. But it, uh, it shows only, I mean, this kind of reasoning shows how complex it is and how important it is to have to have a, a dialogue running. So, um, uh, on uh, my, my summary would be to say, Going back to multilateralism in those uh, early ways, uh, I, I could imagine that Biden is going to sign something on this even on the day of inauguration as, as a gesture, so, so to speak, to the world and as a, as a sign of departure from the Trump line. Other than that, uh, you have to discuss it in detail item by item. Yeah, I, I found it uh, interesting. I saw uh, an article in War on the Rocks that I also sent to you uh, this morning uh, about Reagan. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, I think over the last year I, I've participated in or or listened to a lot of discussions about uh, the example of Reagan uh, uh, moving on from uh, from a rather hostile and 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 uh, aggressive posture in the beginning of his administration to this particular combination of cooperation and competition, also in the in the arms area, of course with the Soviet Union as a particularly fruitful way to move forward. And and um, if we at all uh, will find a bipartisan uh, approach to uh, Russian relations and relations to China, it might be uh, uh, coming back to some of these, uh, these discussions. It seems rather mm-hmm. likely. Mm-hmm. If I, I may... We... Yeah. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. I think there will be also an interesting display uh, taking a lot of leadership and also questions of coordination of U.S. security policy between state and Pentagon yeah. and, uh, and the National Security Council. It's not, a, it's not a done deal and a certain thing how this will play out because the U.S. foreign policy will be trying to find a balance between challenges from Russia, challenges from China, and challenges from the Middle East. And then you have um, challenges in a way in restoring multilateral forums, restoring the, uh, the status and modernizing NATO, modernizing NATO-EU relations uh, in a cooperative fashion. But you have those uh, threefold real challenges uh, going on at the same time. And mm. uh, it will take some time before you see how this play, this triad plays out. Well, one can say... Of course, you can argue that we are obsessed with the United States here, but uh, as we have said in this book uh, uh, clearly and, and in, in uh, also different podcasts before, for Sweden it is absolutely essential and it's part of the official doctrine, if you like, uh, that uh, we need to have the, uh, the necessary actors at the table in, in all multilateral and trilateral and other contexts when we discuss security, and, and uh, the United States is the first in that list, of course, um, uh, already when you talk with uh, about cooperation. But the other actor, if I may go over to that, would be then uh, the Russian Federation. Uh, um, and uh, I also put out, and th- th- that... Uh, the, those that po- those polls are already uh, are still on, on underway, so to say, and very few people have seen them. Uh, but the questions may be interesting to discuss because we did have. We, maybe we can reveal that we did have an, a meeting with some of our colleagues in the academy recently, where when someone said quite uh, rightly, I think that why do we always only talk about what the West should do? <laughs> why mm. don't why don't we also put the question what we would expect the Russians to do in their own interest, basically? <coughs> so here are some questions uh, uh, about what Ru- the Russia could do. Uh, which uh, which uh, could uh, merit some reflections, and I, I'll just run through them very quickly so that you can see uh, <clears throat> see what I'm uh, referring to. Uh, so the the Twitter poll here: 
uh, about what can and should Russia do in its own interest in terms of proposals to reset relations with the West. Well, many people expect something on eastern Ukraine. They don't expect people uh, in Russia to move on Crimea for the time being, but they do expect uh, an, uh, in the Russia's own interest some, some, something on, on Ukraine. Of course, uh, looking for also for a start, sending some sort of positive signal be, with, beyond the recognition of the elections. Uh, Subcategories, uh, sub uh, I'll, I'll leave it over to you in a minute. Uh, what could Russia do in the OEC to improve the situation? Well, they could uh, do less rhetoric, uh, support the new leadership in the OEC. They could help to strengthen the structural dialogue and support OEC presences at least, uh, uh, although... Um, that would mean uh, supporting uh, prolongation of the OEC budget with less uh, negotiations, or difficult negotiations, delaying such decisions. Um, uh, the question of Crimea, what we should do on the Western side is, of course, uh, sanctions question, uh, stop cooperation. Well, most people uh, now say that it has to be a, a, a mix there, so cooperation and security measures from the West. Focus on other issues uh, uh, is what I just mentioned. On Beyond nuclear weapons, uh, what is the most important power asset of the Russian Federation in their own perception? Well, uh, most people think that nowadays information war, the, the capability to destabilize Western governments is a, is a major power asset that they hope to be able to continue to use, which is, of course, very sad for us, if that would be true. They are still a resource-rich country, although hit by climate change and bad dem demography. And then it's a, they have a regional superiority in terms of conventional arms. Do they need to focus on global power, regional power, domestic stability, well, domestic stability seems to be uh, a, a very likely preoccupation. Uh, and nowadays, of course, even the Russian military doctrine refers to domestic stability of the regime as a major objective. Are they mo more oriented towards threat perceptions or opportunities? Uh, are they pessimistic? Are they doing day-to-day -day choices? I mean, it's very popular to say that Putin is... A tactics, a master of tactics and less so of strategy. But I think <clears throat> most people are likely to say that uh, threat perceptions dominate uh, their, their worldview. Um, what does the US election outcome of Brexit? Uh, will that lead to changes in Russian policies towards more cooperation? Possibly not. Less cooperation? Yes, possibly Intense disinformation, wait and see, is also a, a possible outcome of that. How could um, Russia reform support for key OC principles in relations with smaller states? Well, they could uh, abstain from intervention, they could uh, ex respect the, the right of every state to choose whether they want to be non-aligned or member of alliances, not threaten other states and all of the above. How could uh, Russia be helpful in promoting relations with Europe? Again, stop disinformation, uh, having less contacts with populists, uh, have more dialogue with the EU, and all, or all of the above. How could Russia be helpful in the Middle East? Well, <clears throat> could work with the UN, could do less intervention, with, including with private armies, uh, all of the above. Dialogue with the US. Is the EU in a position to agree on a joint approach to Russia, is it? Well, perhaps not now. Well, yes, possibly if the US and UK engage with the EU. Uh, and then many people will say probably yes, the EU is, is able to do that. So this is a quick run-through of a number of <coughs> questions that I put out, as I said, no, not much answers yet, uh, and obviously this is no way representative of any any particular uh, constituency, but uh, maybe the questions themselves can stimulate some thinking on your side. Mm. 
Yeah. What, what strikes me when I read through this uh, list, uh, as I did uh, before this conversation also, is that is to, to think that, uh, of course, uh, the answers to this depends very much uh, on who is being asked uh, where is that person? Is it a Russian citizen or a, or a Western? Is it a scholar or a, or a regular person, so to speak? Uh, and then you have the distinction between uh, whoever the respondent is, uh, between uh, what one would wish Russia to do on the one hand, and on the other hand, what I think they might do or could do should the context be right. And then thirdly, of course, you have many discussions about or questions pertaining to the relationship between those various uh, questions. Uh, so, uh, but in view, in view of all this, um, uh, I, I would uh, get, and for me, it's just a question also of commenting on possible answers to this poll. And, uh, and on the other hand, what do I think about the issues uh, in those questions. So, uh, trying to clarify the, the the table on on these various accounts, my my view uh, would preliminarily be based, uh, as you know, always on action reaction uh, processes on the one hand, and on on uh, deterrence reassure the deterrence reassurance axis including the concept, by the way, of uh, salami tactics uh, that the country would uh, normally seek to step forward uh, from the point of view of its interests and values, uh, but in sufficiently small steps uh, that it will not provoke uh, counterproductive effects such that the net effect becomes minus or, or neutral and therefore not worthwhile. And since uh, this the, this law of uh, of uh, salami tactics uh, uh, makes by definition a study of change uh, difficult because you are you are studying small units per se, small steps. The child is going into the water, but only in such small steps that the, the parent will not notice or think it's worthwhile to react before it uh, becomes too late. So you have that. And um, and you believe that that is the Russian way of working? Yeah, I do. Uh, and uh, as a general principle, uh, it would be uh, irrational for them not to. Uh, and this means also that from the point of view of security, one has to uh, try to uh, figure out what is the long-term trend, what is the interest involved and then to study the various uh, various steps and see how they fit into a, an analysis an analysis of where the country is headed. Uh, I think that one important determinant in this perspective is uh, threat perception and also weak legitimacy of the regime, uh, making it perceive of itself as being strategically defensive, even knowing that steps that they perceive of as defensive can be perceived by affected countries in their surroundings as, as offensive. So you have this, uh, this another concept pair. Uh, I do think that uh, a regime such as Russia's, which is clearly... Uh, which has clearly entered into a, a more authoritarian phase, uh, isolating res the regime from active moments of legitimacy uh, in terms of active support from the population. And uh, you see, there was an interview yesterday with Navalny in uh, in uh, in CNN, uh, where he points out also that there are opposition figures, including himself, which has has many many more contacts and many more uh, levels of analysis of where the Russian population in all its variations ethnically and uh, and class-wise, where they stand in fact. Whereas he said, but many others say also, the regime as such tends to be 
you know, um, engaged in force protection, so to speak. Mm. Make a, use that word as a metaphor here. Um, so it's it's a, it's a difficult game. Also, you have a regime that perceives of itself as being strategically defensive globally in its competition with others, but it's seen uh, by others to use its geography and readiness capacities for steps forward uh, much beyond what salami tactics would advise. I'm referring here to uh, to uh, Syria and Middle East and uh, elsewhere where Russia has clearly used uh, the vacuum left behind by, by the U.S. Uh, as a result of both Obama's and Trump's policy of trying to reduce the military imprint in those areas and replace it instead with... Uh, with <clears throat> so, I mean, there are many things involved that makes me think that the basic parameters and basic determinants of Russian foreign policy will be based on... Uh, perception of a strategic defense, mm. uh, but which will uh, necessitate also because of its authoritarian trade features, let's say, and therefore the need to use foreign policy adventurism as a means of mobilizing support, which is shallow compared to the, the, the weakened legitimacy of the system as such. If you, so if, I see the Russian system as, as uh, uh, so being a bit shaken by these uh, various paradoxes, yes. Yeah, if you compare with Turkey, mm. uh, I mean, Turkey clearly, from an outsider point of view, shouldn't be able to afford all these adventures in, in foreign policy and external mm. relations and external mm. interventions. Uh, can yeah. one apply the same logic to Russia? Yeah, in the sense that we have the weakness of the West, we in the West, we in Europe, in, or including transatlantic relations, to be weak uh, in dealing with uh, bullies, if I may put it this way, you mm. see what I mean. Someone active, and I'm not comparing to the 30s now necessarily now because there are all these differences, but generally speaking, it is very hard to, to mobilize the sufficient uh, resistance early enough to withstand things. And uh, if I compare, therefore, uh, I think it's a good question to compare the very clear case of Turkey with the less clear case of Russia. Mm in relation to to uh, to the West. Then behind those two, you have relations with China, but that's, a, I think it's a, it's a little bit different in terms of magnitude and, and time frame also. So uh, you see the patterns of, uh, of uh, trying to deal with the dilemma always when Western countries deal with authoritarians. Uh, Take the case of Turkey. You had the recent uh, EU summit, which uh, was preceded by a process of uh, of uh, alienation between the EU generally and and Turkey over many things. Mm. Uh, but the releasing factor was the developments in the in the Eastern Mediterranean. And uh, then, of course, uh, that uh, displayed also the weakness of the EU in terms of being a mediator, uh, because, after all, one, only one side of the conflicts in the uh, Eastern Mediterranean are, are members and the others are, are not. And that, that, in turn, is a product of half-wise decisions in the past, mm. inviting Cyprus to be a member and, and, and not... Uh, not the North Cyprus and leaving, pushing, kicking the can on other issues, always uh, further on the on the on the alley. So uh, and then whenever faced uh, faced uh, by Turkey with the choice between firmness and and uh, and uh, acquiescence, uh, the the EU and also the US shown most recently on the uh, on the sanctions side. To, uh, tends to choose the the weaker yeah. the, the the weaker steps because of fear of conse unknown consequences of being more firm. So that in the case of the EU, it was so clear that uh, 
that uh, it, it was been, it was struggling between the between various countries, France, Germany, over a dilemma and how to deal with the dilemma, and and the weaker side prevailed again, as have been done. And similarly with the U.S., uh, now sanctions were. Uh, implemented over the S-400 uh, acquisition, but it was uh, the, the the Trump administration chose the weakest possible combination of san- sanctions, hitting only persons in the defense industry establishments uh, and not the Turkish economy as a whole. Uh, I am saying this because similarly in the case of Russia, I think the EU is uh, facing a huge dilemma in the balance between firmness, resistance, yeah. so to speak, and, and uh, trying to trying to accommodate because uh, costs the cost benefit analysis is difficult to to agree on because individual European countries do not have the same position on the map. Yeah, I'd like to finish this uh, on my side uh, podcast with uh, two comments. Uh, Basically, first, um, when we discuss the EU, of course, we as Swedes are very happy about the fact that we are part of the EU consultation, discussion, discourse on these issues. It's much easier for us to get a wider view on 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 issues than uh, than if we uh, would have to discuss this on our own or bilaterally in in in. in in bodies which are less uh, frequent in their meetings, European Council is a huge asset in terms of being able to form an opinion. Um, we have, um, I, I think most of us, uh, enormous respect for the uh, knowledge and, and institutional memory of the Russian uh, administration. Uh, they have uh, a number of very qualified people in place for a very, very long time. Uh, what where we have been missing for quite some time is in the United States, where where the uh, institutional memory was uh, basically undercut severely by the disarray in the State Department and and the closing down of a number of of special portfolio special representatives uh, focusing on specific key issues externally. Now that may be restored as uh, coming people coming back with earlier experience from uh, I mean the appointment of the Secretary of State is a case in point of someone who definitely knows what what he is talking about from earlier experience so and that will be very all very important because what you you basically are saying and what, what we are trying to say in our joint podcast over quite some time is that we need much more knowledge both of the past and also wider perspectives, see the links between different things, to see the relationship between the regional and global levels and see how the eastern and the southern dimensions link together with the transatlantic. And it's actually knowledge and understanding of, uh, of security policies now much more than just knowing each one of these, but to see the links between them. And if if it could have any use for us uh, to do these podcasts would be if people would become more uh, inclined to look into those wider issues uh, in a in a less than idealistic way, so to say that comprehensive approaches are good for what? Well, uh, to see that there are actually some very difficult questions, uh, diff- difficult uh, um, uh, dilemmas out there. And that it might help peace uh, to for people to see the link between the regional and global level. For Russia, it, uh, it clearly is vital today, as we have said in an earlier podcast on arms control, that <coughs> Russia is now extremely dependent upon the relationship with China, which we don't have time to talk about here. But the link between China, the United States and Russia is going to be fundamental in uh, both on the strategic uh, levels, but also in other other uh, arms-related uh, areas, where both now China and India have larger military budgets than, than the Russian Federation. So I would like to end there on my side and thanking you for this, but uh, leave uh, the floor for you for some final comments. Thank you. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Uh, not not much 
to add, um, but I do think that we had tried to show in our report that whereas it's clear that uh, we are now facing a more multinational international system, uh, even the um, new administration in the U.S. under uh, Joe Biden will not uh, be able to nor even seek to have the same kind of U.S. dominance of world affairs as was the case in the, in the Clinton years, let's say, in the 90s. There is a declining tendency, which is which is both uh, the U.S. reacting to things, uh, uh, which is uh, which reflects uh, the well the domestic policy and politics that we have discussed, uh, but also as consensus, growing consensus within the U.S. that it is necessary to terminate uh, the endless wars that were created for the U.S mainly under the banner of fight against terror. And it has been uh, realized in the U.S., but also uh, elsewhere, that it is doubtful whether these various campaigns have, have produced much, although they may have been seen to be necessary as a fight against terror. But terror, of course, as we see daily, has not disappeared. But the, uh, the uh, resilience by the U.S. Uh, population to keep supporting those various wars in Afghanistan, being Iraq, and the Middle East generally, and also North Africa, uh, it is expiring. And therefore, uh, we are foreseeing a shift of means, at least, from the U.S. Uh, I'm definitely I'm convinced of that. But this must be seen in relationship with the assertiveness, on the other hand, of the competitive power, competitive powers, mainly Russia, uh, near term, then China, then also India uh, and other other players. But they will tend to to use the Middle East as as a as a as an arena for their interaction uh, in a more multinational, spread international system. And the uh, effects of all this, including, by the way, Brexit, uh, on security of Europe and therefore security of Sweden, is what we are trying to grasp now in our in our in our future work in this project. And it's uh, it's a way it's a way of uh, trying to catch a, a bird flying because uh, there are so daily changes uh, at work, which is another complication that we will discuss on Friday in the project leadership. But um, uh, realizing all these things and then try to make sense of our own security policy uh, with the main aim being, of course, of, of uh, making our share in the, in the international work to prevent war. Because war is, is hell, whether it's nuclear or, or conventional, and it's, uh, it's the biggest case. But you must prevent, you must do your share in, in preventing that by doing your share in, the, in your own security, so to speak, uh, unilaterally, but also as a small country. Uh, with the interdependence that we have with other other countries, other countries uh, meaning Western countries in in our case, but then you have the question of dialogue uh, on the other side, and it's a, so it's a full table uh, to be dealing with both analytically and of course politically. So I, I end there. So we have to do quite some work next year in order to make it a better year than this one. I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. We meaning uh, the world. Yes. 